everyone. Welcome to our live stream today. We are now currently live. Uh, my name is Munar Adli. I'm the founder and director of Mint Press News and your host today of the Mintcast podcast. Um, Alan will be joining us again next week. So this show, as you all know, is made possible by supporters like you. So as we face shadow banning on many platforms and the crackdown on independent anti-war journalism intensifies, we ask that you support us by becoming a member on our Patreon page, which we will link in the comments below. However, for our next guest, the repression was just turned up a notch to an 11. While returning to his native Great Britain, investigative journalist Kit Clarenberg was arrested at the airport by six plainclothes counterterrorism officers, interrogated and kept isolated for hours. Kit is an investigative journalist who contributes to The Cradle, The Gray Zone, and right here at Mint Press News. Kit, welcome to the show today. Hey, how's it going? Good. So first, I think it would be really helpful if you just laid out exactly what happened to you a few weeks ago when you tried to enter England via plane. Could you just tell us what happened? Yeah, sure. So um, on the 17th of May, I flew into London's Luton Airport and... Um, uh, the second that we touched down, the pilot said, oh, Tannoy, um, everyone have your passports ready because uh, the border control is just around the corner. Um, because I hadn't been back to the, uh, to the UK in some time, you know, well over a year, um, a part of me wondered whether the airport had been restructured since I was last there. Um, and uh, But no, as I descended onto the tarmac, it was clear there was a team of plainclothes officers in intensively checking everyone's ID, everyone's passport as they got off. The second that the, the, uh, the one officer saw my name, he said, right, come with me. I, I was then frog-marched, you know, flanked by this team of six officers to a back room. Um, I was told that I would be detained on Schedule 3 of the 2019 Prevention of Terrorism Act. Um, and then I, you know, I had to hand over my digital devices, my bank cards, um, uh, my, the passwords to my um, uh, digital devices, my, you know, my camera and phone memory cards. Um, again, you know, I, had to, I had to give the pins to my SIM cards. And um, I was subject to an intensive search. I had to take my shoes off. I was patted down, um, you know, quite intrusively. And then I was grilled for five hours um, on, you know, on everything and nothing, pretty much, um, by and large related to my journalism. But I think that they had a, a darker agenda. So, so tell me a little bit more about the terrorism act that they held you on and how was that used against you? What was their reasoning for that? Sure. So, okay. So the 2019, I mean, I might add that like Britain has for a very long time had the most sweeping um, counter-terrorism in the Western world. I mean, arguably even in the world. Um, you know, they, they, they overturn, you know, centuries old and hard fought for rights and protections and even freedoms that, you know, average citizens enjoy and, you know, grant police sweeping and indeed often like very disconcertingly and disturbingly vague powers. So um, typically when people are stopped, under the 2019 Act, it's under Schedule 7, which refers to you know, individual activity, which is a, potentially a threat to the state or potentially a threat to um, national security, which is, I mean, a disturbing proposition enough. Um, uh, but but you know, Schedule 3 is even more um, Orwellian because it refers to uh, uh, alleged or suspected state threats. You know, the, uh, the obvious suggestion being that I and all my journalism uh, posed a threat to the British state. Now, the wording of the law is such that someone can be or represent a state threat without intending to or me wanting to or knowing they're doing it. 
And also, without the state on whose behalf, the kind of foreign enemy state on, on, on whose behalf they are acting, knowing or wanting them to either. So it's quite some conspiracy, isn't it? When mm-hmm. both conspirators don't actually know they're conspiring together um, and don't have a um, you know pre-agreed obje- objective or game plan in mind. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, it doesn't stop there. So in effect, one of the powers that's granted to the police is the ability to, yes, as I say, um, ask um, or demand under threat of arrest your, you know, your, the passcodes to your electronic devices, um, yes, your, your PIN codes to um, you know, your, your, your SIMs or, or your tablet, um, in, in my case, um, or your computer passwords. There was a French publisher who was arrested a few weeks prior to my arrival for refusing to hand over his um, de- the passcodes to his digital devices. And the police have, you know, have, have kept them, and, they, and, and there's no indication they'll ever give them back, quite you know, worryingly. But in effect, it states very in some of the paperwork that I was provided with by nameless officers. I could not name. I only learned their passcodes. I didn't learn their names. So I was prohibited from doing so. Um, and it states. Um, you are not under arrest and you are not suspected of having committed a crime. So, you know, so good, so encouraging. But then the kicker is that this means that you are not being interviewed under caution. Therefore, you will be arrested if you refuse to answer questions. Now, Britain is the country that's invented the right to silence. And in fact, until relatively recently, it was enforced so stringently as as a legal principle that people couldn't testify in their own defence uh, at criminal trials because it was felt improper the prospect that someone's words could be you know twisted or taken out of context or used against them um so i mean this is a, a huge um regression um you know going back over centuries um and it is in keeping with the kind of totalitarian nightmares we are told occur in you know enemy countries like russia and china and north korea um but it seems you know rather you know every day in humdrum um you know in in quaint old Britain. So it's, it's obviously absolutely ludicrous and yet tragically predictable now in the West that you were, as an investigative journalist, um, arrested under the terrorism rubric. Can you comment on the use and misuse of that word in modern discourse and how governments the world over are exploiting it? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I mean, the, 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 the very phrase, the like, concept of terrorism is, is like complete bullshit. I mean, and it's just used by Western, primarily Western countries to refer to um, violence uh, directed at them, um, or at least like violence they don't like. I mean, you know, I, I, my adopted home country is Serbia. Um, the scars of the NATO, NATO terror campaign. Um, are very much still there, you know, bombed out buildings, people missing limbs, uh, babies born with birth defects because Britain and America used depleted uranium, which they have, you know, very eagerly and proudly sent to Ukraine recently. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's a nonsensical term. It, it basically comes into, um, currency and usage in the 70s at a time when the Israelis were attempting to frame, um, the uh, response from Palestinians to their brutal, um, and criminal occupation. Uh, not as yes, you know, a a a, a provoked counter response, but as part of an ideology of violence. We have violence for violence sake. You know, they do it because they hate our freedoms. That sort of you know war on terror rhetoric. And so yes, I mean it can very easily be uh, you know mis you know, misapplied or, or or abused for the purposes of criminalizing 
um, you know, perfectly legitimate legal dissent. Now, there was a phrase that British police used for a very long time called domestic extremist, and uh, and they would slap this label on people wearing Palestine solidarity badges. You know, grandmothers who opposed fracking were all you know mm. domestic extremists. They were forced to admit that they didn't have a legal working definition of the term. Um, you know, under you know, due, due to a, a judicial review that was leveled against the government, but they just they admitted it was completely meaningless terms and meant whatever they wanted it to. And I think that the, you kind of see this with the term terrorism as well. Is that the UN has a wide variety of different definitions of terrorism and can't agree on one because if they do agree on you know a, a definition such as oh well it is violence for political reasons well then Britain and America are the world's leading terrorists and we can't have that can we so yeah I mean and I I I've made this point before but I think it bears repeating that that vague language contained within the 2019 Act where you can be serving hostile state interests um, without knowing it or intending it but this is still potentially a criminal offence um, you know this is really terrifying. And this is going beyond the realm of people being um, uh, deplatformed or censored or shadow banned on social media because they express the wrong opinion or they post information that the powers that be don't like. This is people getting uh, you know, detained, arrested, investigated, and potentially even jailed because they are spreading "quote unquote" Russian disinformation by um, challenging mainstream narratives on any issue. Um, I have reported on. You know, have reviewed you know, personally um, do, uh, British government documents on disinformation, which number one um, admit that one of the key barriers to countering it is that it's often factually true. But um, number two, um, also um, uh, you know, cite examples of disinformation, such as the the perspective that the rap the rap war was legal. Um, you know, I mean, this is this is really frightening. And like, you know, this is not a looming threat. We are living in it. Now, there's an individual called Graham Phillips who, uh, he was a rather controversial YouTuber who travelled uh, many times to uh, Donetsk and Luhansk uh, with, and embedded with the, you know, the, the kind of separatist rebels there over the years. Now, he travelled to Ukraine after, after the Russian invasion last year and um, he conducted a number of interviews with Ukrainian prisoners of war. I might add that I think he did the wrong thing. Um, this is not something I would ever even think to do. Um, but the British government responded by seizing his assets, his home, closing his bank account. Um, and they did so despite, um, you know, documents indicate, knowing they had no legal basis for doing this, that this was a criminal act and that they were, they were engaging in unilaterally. Um, they were advised not to do it by their own lawyers. So, I mean, the idea, that, that, you know, the fact that they completely got away with that, and I think bar Peter Hitchens, there was zero critical comment on it in the media, um, you know, they are emboldened. They know that they can do whatever they want and strive for whatever they want. And let's talk a little bit about the coverage that you've done that you believe has sure. made you a target. I mean, you've been at the forefront of covering, like you said, the UK national security state. Um, and the war in Ukraine and how Western governments and NATO allied governments are basically uh, pouring fuel on the fire there in the U.S. proxy war against Russia inside of Ukraine. So tell me more about some of the coverage that you have done um, that has that you that you believe has made you a target. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, one interesting thing that I only recently found out is Britain has a, an organization called the, the Defense and Security Media Advisory Committee. This is a Ministry mm -hmm. of Defense and British Security and Intelligence Service run body, which regularly meets 
um, with the heads of the BBC and the Guardian and other major mainstream outlets. And they determine how particular stories related to national security, which is in itself a very vague, um, sweeping concept. Um, and uh, yeah, what stories related to national security can be reported on and how they can be reported on. And it creates a situation in which a, the overwhelming majority of news that the, the British citizens read in the British media is edited, censored, and maybe even written um, by Britain's national security establishment. Now, in the minutes of their most recent meeting, um, in which uh, the represent its representatives um, discussed the past six months. So this is kind of from uh, October, November last year up until April, May this year. Um, they the, what the, a um, what one of the military people on on this uh, on this committee said that this period saw the most controversial stories that they had ever seen and the most sensitive material um, uh, and enter the public domain in, in the time that they've been part of this. Now, this was a period when Grey Zone, um, and I led the charge on this, was on a regular basis exposing the reality of Britain's contribution to the Ukraine proxy war. This yeah. included plotting to blow up Kerch Bridge, constructing a partisan terror army to carry out um, sabotage and other, you know, kind of terror strikes in Russian and indeed Russian-occupied territory. Um, and, you know, this, these are things that the British government want kept under wraps. They are rigidly and determinedly um, sticking and trying to maintain the narrative that, that you know, that Ukraine is a, you know, this kind of virgin, innocent, you know, virgin liberal democracy, which, you know, Russia has invaded because Putin is a, you know, kind of Machiavellian bond villain who, you know, enjoys the smell and the taste of blood. Um, you know, the reality is that Britain has for over a decade been trying to promote what is happening now. Ever since the war formally started, they have been um, pushing the US to escalate ever further, ramp up tensions, you know, boots on the ground, um, in, because they think that they're going to destroy Russia and, and, and it's going to be broken up in, 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 into pieces, which they can exploit. Um, you know, that's not going to happen, but they are so determined um, to keep this reality secret, that anything challenging the, the established narrative is seen as criminal. Now, um, yes, the grey zone has received a large number of um, of leaks from you know, anonymous sources. Um, uh, we have you know, not, not always published the material. We have you know, um, uh, you know, uh, thought very carefully about whether th this material is in the public interest. We have tried to authenticate it to you know 100% accuracy um and you know we, we've, we've done what all journalists should do and you know the 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 fact that you know in a in a you know, terror police interview i'm being asked um does the gray zone have a formal agreement with the fsb russia's security federal mm. security Service, wow. to publish hacked documents i mean I, 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 I had to suppress a laugh when I was asked that, but it's not funny. It's deeply disturbing. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, I think there's an awful lot of projection in there as well, because Britain, like America, is heavily involved in funding, um, you know, fake citizen journalist collectives and media outlets in, in, um, in kind of countries. That's a, very good, that's a very good point. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's a very common, and I think, yes, that kind of Britain um, actually takes a lead role in this. They certainly did in Syria. Uh, that, that, that it, when a country is, is earmarked for regime change, whether through, you know, direct boots on the ground intervention or, or um, you know, clandestine cloak and dagger coups, 
um, the British will usually set up a network of um, uh, media outlets uh, that you know extol anti-government messages, and the, and you know, of course the US has you know, the National Endowment for Democracy, which has been doing the same thing with NGOs and charities um, since um, the early eighties. Um, but yes, I mean, the, 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 I, I do wonder whether their experience of doing these things means that they see all um, alternative media, i.e. the opposition from their perspective, that's challenging yeah. their narratives, as being secretly state-run. We see this in, in uh, uh, emails sent to and from Paul Mason, where he was talking about how he wanted to expose the grey zone and, and discover what our deliverables were to the Chinese and Russian governments, which is just completely insane. Um, he was doing this in conjunction with an individual called Amal Khan. Um, I have, have, of course, written a number of um, investigations for Mint Press covering his um, shady background. But you know, he was one of the individuals responsible for creating fake citizen journalist collectives for British intelligence in Syria and um, you know, in other parts of West Asia. Now, of course, within when you live in that uh, that wilderness of mirrors for so long. Um, everything looks like you know an op to you. Of course, it does. So there's an enormous amount of projection, right? And that doesn't even like begin to scratch the surface of the actual journalists who we see like as the faces of CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, mm-hmm. who work literally directly with intelligence agencies, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's quite remarkable. I mean, you know, CNN, CIA, and then. Um, as I've heard many people call it, I mean, they have so many former, you know, NSA, CIA, and you know, Pentagon officials who were just there, you know, kind of regular pundits and elements beyond the joke. But yes, I mean, you know, like j- journalists are very, very easily co-opted. They're quite clearly groomed. I think that it would be almost impossible for someone who's not compromised in some way by the CIA and or MI6 to get a prominent job in journalism. We see this with Mariana Spring, who is the you know the, the BBC specialist disinformation correspondent. She got that role pretty much fresh out of. Um, Oxford University, where she was in the same um, uh, house uh, as uh, Richard Dearlove, the disgraced MI6 chief. And she got this job in March 2020, which is right when the British government wanted to crack down on any and all opposing viewpoints that ran contrary to their their pandemic policies, like whether that was lockdowns or um, mask and vaccine mandates and, and, and the like. And yes, you know, her entire her sole targets are independent, um, alternative media and journalists. They don't go off. She doesn't go after the BBC or you know any of the other you know, you know, well-established conduits for intelligence agency propaganda, which we pump out lies on a daily basis. Um, you know, it's quite it's quite remarkable. Um, and so yes, I mean. Uh, it, 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 I mean, we see this with Bellingcat as well, which is you know, axiomatically. Well, I was just thinking about Bellingcat. I mean, that's like the prime example of um, the national security state um, partnership with a journalism outlet, a so-called journalism outlet. Yeah, it's just like I, I think that they. I, I, I mean, it, it's quite remarkable the gym, the gymnastics that the media engages in to whitewash the reality of Bellingcat. Like the Times uh, a couple of years ago, the Times of London, they published a fawning review of Eddie Higgins' awful book on how brilliant Bellingcat is by saying that you know Bellingcat very wisely refuses money from governments. You know, their biggest funder by far is the aforementioned National Endowment for Democracy. It's the, the founders, yeah. 
the, founder, the founders of which openly admit that they do overtly what the CIA did covertly and are engaged in all sorts of destabilization regime change jobs, particularly targeted China now. Um, I had an article go out um, well, uh, a few hours ago <laughs> via Mint Press on their, their likely sponsorship of, of an organization called Safeguard Defenders, which has been behind an anti-Chinese psyop that there are these secret police stations operating all over the world on behalf of the Communist Party, um, which is you know, just complete, completely ludicrous rubbish that you know, people's lives are being ruined as a result. But yes, you know, you know, Bellingcat, they have, as Adam, uh, uh, the mighty Alan McLeod has documented at length, they have a, a coterie of former spies um, amongst their amongst their contributors, they are heavily funded by the MED. They receive vast sums from the Foreign Office. They do work for intelligence cutouts like Adam Smith International, and they refuse to disclose what they did for these organisations. Uh, the idea that they are in any way independent and that their platform has been taken, not you know specifically granted, you know from a position of protection, is completely ludicrous. Well, and Kit, what's so interesting about your case, you know, being interrogated and held by the British police is that it really didn't get any attention or support from these so-called human rights organizations that would normally defend journalists in like in African countries, for example, or in Middle Eastern countries that would call foul that they're being detained and interrogated and and, and so forth. So um, you did receive one... Um, statement of support from the NUJ, which is the National Union of Journalists based in the UK, I believe. Um, but they actually took down their statement of support. Can you tell me what the reaction has been overall from these, um, you know, journalism support networks? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, to, to their to their part of these partial credit, um, you know, uh, RSF uh, reporters without borders were in touch with me, you know, very very quickly, okay. and they, they they took down a detailed of on what happened and they said that they were looking at a number of similar cases which was encouraging and then a few hours later the NUJ as you mentioned um, issued a rather brief um, but still quite substantive statement expressing quote-unquote great concern at my detention and um, asking for answers on why this happened and then within 24 hours it was removed from the internet without explanation and you know like wow. there was all sorts of all sorts of um you know this threw up all sorts of anomalies like the, the the public head of the NUJ tweeted this out and it was still left on her tweet timeline um the statement which no longer existed um but yes i mean i'm not surprised the NUJ is a pretty toothless organization they have previously thrown andrew marcus sorry uh, craig murray and julian assange under the bus um, you know, the, the, and I think that there was a, an enormous amount of online pressure from my, from the you know large number of people I've pissed off over the years. I mean, you can't do actual journalism without making um, a lot of enemies. Um, and yes, that there, there was a concerted push to frame the narrative that I'm not a journalist, and you know, therefore this was okay, um, or the, you know, therefore I'm a spy, or I'm um, yes, a you know, hostile state actor. Uh, actor. I mean, bear in mind. Police specifically asked me, um, uh, you know, what, whether I had journalistic materials with me. They quizzed me at length about my professional um, uh, affiliation and qualifications. They asked me, you know, what protections would a press card give you and all this other stuff, which they could find out by Google. I wonder whether they were trying to determine how much trouble they were in stopping me, or indeed, yes, whether they could successfully perpetuate the narrative that I'm not a journalist. I mean, that's an enduring smear against Julian Assange, which has been used to 
justify his incarceration. And yet it now seems rather depressingly likely that he will be extradited to the US to stand trial and get sent to a supermax prison for 175 years. This notion that he's not a journalist when he has won multiple uh, coveted journalism awards. He is a member of the you know, Australian Union of Journalists. So yeah, I mean, that's quite, that's quite frightening, but I am very heartened by how many people, um, including you know journalists and, and uh, researchers and, and even pundits with whom I couldn't disagree more, have had crosswords with in the past, um, who have uh, you know condemned this very publicly, um, and you know and, and, and said you know completely unambiguously this was completely wrong and should not have happened. And the British police have serious questions to answer about why I was harassed and detained in this manner. And yes, I am, you know, I do take uh, pride with my word, but I, 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 I take some, some assurance and encouragement from the fact that literally tens of thousands of people all over the world, um, you know, condemn this publicly. And you know, a great many people reach out to me privately and publicly. Um, you know, when you're in a situation like, like, like this, you find out who your friends are and actually have a lot more than I, than I thought I did. And that's usually what happens when you go through a crisis. You find out who your real enemies are and who your true friends are. And unfortunately, this whole case um, against you has um, many worrying parallels to how British authorities have treated WikiLeaks co-founder um, Julian Assange. But I hope that, you know, you remain a free man and, you know, you're always safe and are able to continue the very important journalism that you are doing, um, much for Mint Press, for The Grey Zone and The Cradle. Um, that is all for today, Kit. I really appreciate your time today. We're That's keeping it sh- we're we're keeping it short today, but we're going to be having you back on in a couple of weeks to talk more about your journalism. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, absolutely, God bless you. Take care. Thank you.